Hello and welcome to the Food Climate Podcast. I'm Guillaume, your host, and each week, I'm fortunate to share with you stories from climate tech founders, investors, and corporations sharing their unique insights into this fast-moving industry. Eventually, like me, you will learn, discover, and get inspired by those unique men and women who are contributing to the fight against climate change, and I hope it will help you to take a step in this formidable movement. So before we start, I just want to share a few words about us as this podcast is just the tip of the iceberg of what we do at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech movement. Our mission is to accelerate capital deployment towards climate tech founders, allowing them to focus on scaling their solutions. How do we do that? Every day, we help founders access to resources and connections and gain the visibility they need to expand their growth. We do this in a number of ways with a membership platform, a Slack group with a growing number of founders, investors, and experts from around the world. And recently, we went one step further with a matching services to connect founders with top climate tech investors. Keep in mind that we are able to do all of this thanks to the support of our listeners and our members. Please like and subscribe share one episode with a friend, join a community, and if you haven't already done so, make a small donation to support our work. It really means the world to us. And now, enjoy the show! Hi everyone, on today's podcast, I had the pleasure of meeting with Albert Bilinko, partner at Telstra Capital. A very exciting firm that has invested in more than 91 tech-enabled companies, of which 15 have become unicorns. Their focus is one post-revenue, Series A to Series C, writing 3 to 12 million on initial checks, and working closely with founders to grow their businesses. Albert describes himself as a geek regularly reading and researching about the energy transition. He was very early to the food delivery space, starting a business with some friends in 2011 and describes how his naivety took him on a steep learning curve. He then went on to spend time at Goldman Sachs on the finance and technology side and was an advisor to companies, CEOs, CFOs, which gave him a good grounding to become an investor. In today's episode, we discuss the transformation of Australia's energy system towards renewable resources, particularly solar power, and the challenges faced for residential adoption, such as high upfront costs and lack of awareness still existing. However, the increasing cost of electricity from traditional sources is creating a stronger incentive to make the switch. Albert also discusses Telstra's approach to supporting companies that have potential to solve challenging problems at scale and how they go about supporting international expansion. In the second part of the show, Albert gives his thought on top of the three pieces of advice for founders pitching to investors and shares his go-to book and podcast for learning about climate and climate tech. Albert, welcome to the show. 
Hi Albert, welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today. I'm looking forward to this great opportunity to hear your story and get up to speed on what you guys are looking at with Telstra Venture, which has been partnering with incredible tech founders building the quote-unquote future, which even more than ever today includes founders active in the climate tech space. And this is super interesting for me as we need more traditional investors with long-standing experience supporting and uh, supporting startup and joining, excuse me, and joining the game to support this, those founders fighting the climate change. So welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Really great to see you, Guillaume. So before we start, um, can you give us a 30-second introduction about Telstra Venture? Great, very happy to do that. So I'm one of the seven partners in the firm and we've invested over a billion dollars in 91 technology and tech-enabled companies so far. Uh, we've been very fortunate that 15 of them have become unicorns. So businesses like DocuSign, Box, CrowdStrike, and AltZero. Uh, so far, one of the ways that we've differentiated the most is we've actually generated over 450 mil USD of revenue for the portfolio today. And we've done that via access to a, several different channels that we've partnered with. So they include DocuSite, they include, sorry, Telstra Corporation, Vodafone, Infosys, Tech Mahindra, and many others. So we've been able to get our founders who've opted in to leverage these channels to help sell their products. We raised 350 mil USD for our third fund late last year, which is really exciting. So we're very actively deploying at the moment. We're typically writing about three to 12 mil USD for initial check sizes. And we're really focusing on post-revenue Series A to Series C investments and working closely with founders to help them grow their businesses. So let's start from the, from the top. As you know, in the show, we love the human, uh, sometimes more than their, their resume and their LinkedIn profile. So can you tell us a bit more about your um, you know, personal story and background? I mean, what are you passionate about? What do you do besides uh, investing, supporting uh, uh, founders? I mean, what makes you feel inspired or like your best self? As I always ask, who's Albert? Yeah, so the, the honest truth is that in my spare time, I'm, a, I'm an unpaid Uber driver for my two small children. So my, my girls are two, two and four years old. We're actually planning a, a fifth birthday party at the moment. And so my wife and I are all hands on deck, uh, cleaning every part of the house that hasn't successfully been cleaned in, in months. Uh, so uh, we spend lots and lots of time with them. I'm, I'm really focused on my kids, actually. I, I, I take my, my, uh, my eldest to school, she just started kindy, I take her to school every day and drop her off, uh, three days a week actually, and uh, catch the bus every time. We, we love public transport. Uh, so I'm, yeah, spend lots of time with them. I'm, a, you know, I really enjoy exercise and running and football and things like that. So my, my daughter has started soccer for the first time. She's already lost her shin pads, which is pretty amazing to me. And uh, so, yeah, I just, I, I enjoy doing that. Uh, I, I'm a very, I'm someone who's like very geekily interested in a few topics. And for me, one of those is the energy transition. So I've, I've spent a lot of time, kind of, you know, for many years uh, learning about the energy transition. It's something that, that excites me. I think I, I saw a stat that the average Australian spends six minutes per year thinking about energy. So I'm extremely, extremely nerdy compared to that. 
but thank you so much and uh, and congrats on uh, spending so much time with uh, with your family with your uh, with your uh, daughters i mean i'm a dad myself and i know uh, how important it is and how uh, important in terms of uh, <laughs> time it can be as well so tell us a bit uh, more about your um, you know work and life uh, experience prior uh, during telstra venture i mean what did you learn during the the journey that journey that uh, in a way gave you a edge uh, to join the firm as a as a partner i mean maybe you have like one or two pieces of experience that really uh, you can look at and say yeah that was super helpful uh, for me to, uh, to 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 join now uh, the firm yeah definitely so you know a good example is i actually co-founded an on-demand food delivery business here in in sydney australia back in in 2011 and 12. Uh, so we were we were really early into the space actually we we you know it was a very clear need that that no one was really catering for at the time especially in the lunchtime slot and uh we we felt there was a really easy really really convenient value proposition for consumers so some mates and i started working on that business you know with a lot of excitement there were some really really encouraging early signs and you know quite frankly i was a simply terrible founder i was so naive about uh, so many things and but what, what excited me was the, the customer experience i mean i was just really clear in my head what the, the future customer experience would be and so i was kind of always striving towards that goal but i really didn't anticipate what a subsidy battle that space would become competitive how absolutely cutthroat it would be you know back then i australia didn't even really have a venture capital industry to be honest they're, they're this concept of giving cash burning companies money to to burn more to grow i mean i i honestly didn't even know that was a thing at the time so i was very focused on my utilization of my drivers and i knew at what percentage i was generating cash and at what percentage i wasn't so it, it, it really is one of these experiences that shaped me and probably gave me way more gray hairs than, than I should have had at that, at that age. I also spent several years at Goldman Sachs, actually. So my, my background is, is really on the finance and technology side. So I spent several years covering technology. I worked with some of the biggest uh, US and Asian acquirers of, of technology companies, especially in, in Australia and New Zealand, but, but also globally. And so that was, that was uh, remarkable and just really intense, uh, very, very interesting. And then I also spent a few years covering commodities, so oil and gas and metals and mining uh, in Sydney. And that was during a pe period of absolutely booming commodity prices, uh, like thermal coal, for example. Because during that process, we, I think I, I must have sold maybe 10 or 12 different coal-related assets. I mean, I'm not... I'm not proud of that fact. I know we're on a on a clean energy podcast, but that that was the market back then, and I, I was I was sitting there thinking, you know, at what at what point does does renewable energy get so cheap that that these thermal coal assets, you know, may not be worth the, the extreme extreme valuations that, that that back then with the commodity supercycle that were that were being paid for those assets, and so. It's, yeah, it's given me great joy the, seeing the transition of, of renewables over time, especially in Australia with the growth of the uh, residential solar industry. It's been really a phenomenon to, to see. Uh, but for me, my background has been working really closely with companies as they've expanded. So, you know, at Goldman, I was really an advisor to companies, to, to, to CEOs, CFOs, management teams, helping them understand their, their competitive landscape and see what what transactions they can do to fully fund their business and grow. 
And so we we were, you know, Goldman was was and is a, a market leading investment banking practice. And so that that gave me really great exposure to, to lots of fantastic CEOs. And I was able to see how much capital structure can also make a pretty big difference in the in the trajectory of these businesses. And also, frankly, the difference between doing a transaction that's a good transaction that genuinely, you know, helps shareholders in the long term versus just doing transactions to be busy. And so it's really as that now that I'm on, you know, I've been an investor for, for many years now, like almost a decade, uh, been you know, on the buy side, quote unquote, it, it really gives me a, a very clear perspective on the types of transactions companies should do as they consolidate their industries that are actually accretive to the founders and to the investors. So I think it gave me a really good grounding and also just gave me a gave me that interest in, in energy. So I think it's interesting because uh, you, you covered a little bit your uh, previous uh, you know, entrepreneurship experience and then your experience in, uh, in, in finance and then in this uh, commodities market and touching point to like the, the energy sectors and now like, you know, with Tesla Venture, uh, which uh, originally is more focused like uh, supporting and investing in, in you know, as a, as a VC, uh, traditional VC, I would say, not with like the uh, specific angle on, on climate tech. So, what has been your, your driver in a way uh, to start to look into clean and now what we call uh, climate tech uh, in itself? I mean, any specific aha moment uh, that you could uh, uh, define as such or, or would recall and in a way motivation uh, besides the maybe uh, huge opportunity that uh, the whole industry represents? It's a really good question. So we actually invested in DocuSign back in 2014, and we never used the words climate tech at that time. But one of the reasons we invested was because of the you know, massive environmental benefits of not having to print and, and waste huge amounts of paper and all the water that's used and, and carbon that's used in, in, part, in that process. It's actually incredibly wasteful. And so it was one of the things that really drew us to that section. Uh, to that sector and, and really made us spend time there. And I mean, now DocuSign has grown to be a really significant company with billions of dollars of revenue. And it's it's almost become a verb, like people DocuSign documents these days. And so they don't print things off. But back then, I mean, it was, it was much more, you know, it was much smaller. The whole industry of electronic signatures was probably in the tens of millions of dollars total. It was a, an incredibly small market back then. But we really saw potential for it to one day completely replace how transactions were undertaken. We saw huge potential in it. And so for us, that was definitely one of the moments where we just found a, a process that was, you know, much more, much better digitization process uh, that just improved every aspect of the transaction. So we, we really like that. We are, as you, as you point out, we are a generalist in, in firm. So a generalist firm investing in digital and technology driven solutions. So we've We've done many transactions in cybersecurity, in fintech, in shortech. Uh, we've done lots in, in just general enterprise software. And we have done a range of transactions that include hardware and software. So, for example, we're an investor in a business called Movis that does condition and energy monitoring for industrial machines. And we've also invested in things like programmable robots companies uh, and others. So we, we definitely do, do both. And I think over 
over time, it you know, for me, w when I was at Goldman and then also at, at Telstra Ventures, where I joined eight years ago, I've it's it's always intrigued me how the the scientific consensus around climate change is so strong, and yet the the reaction by most people, by kind of the average person on the street, is kind of much less uh, informed. I'd say I think that is changing you know, now, and it, it has changed really well, which is is really encouraging. But that, that's something that always struck me, how even several years ago, it was it was very widely accepted that climate change was a real threat to humanity. And yet I saw so little action. So it, it's, you know, that whole process has really been an impetus. So we had some good results early in, in some transactions like DocuSign that were, were very, you know, just much more streamlined processes. So we also invested in Box, for example, which is a similar thematic. And so in the last three years, we've been really actively investing in the category. So to give you an example, we led this, the first institutional round for Open Solar, which provides software for solar installers in 130 countries. And so they have a freemium business model where every everyone can, an installer anywhere in the world can adopt their technology. They can start using it to design a solar PV installation on someone's roof and moving into full home electrification. And so they can get started, they can start using it without cost and it makes them dramatically more efficient. So it's almost doubling the amount of quotes they could issue per month. So it's a really significant efficiency driver. And so we spent a lot of time researching the residential solar space. It was something we were intrigued by. And, you know, I'd say in this, in this regard, we had an advantage in the sense that Australia is the number one country in terms of per capita adoption of residential solar. So one in three, one in three Australian households actually have solar. We have 3.4 million households in Australia with solar today, uh, which is actually around the same as the US market, even though the US has 10x the population of Australia's 25 million people. So, you know, it, 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 is, a, it is a market that's incredibly well suited for it. And so we, you know, that, that's an Aussie company really taking the world by storm with pollution. So we've just been drawn to companies that have a product that is really making a difference. And it's just mm -hmm. been a process for us in the last few years of really understanding the depth of the problem and just very actively looking for companies to either directly reduce carbon or mitigate the consequences of the climate change. We, we think it's really the, the biggest challenge of our time. And so it's it's an increasing kind of focus on it, especially with you know a lot of us in the team have kids, and I can't lie that, that that's also been a big part of the impetus of the change. Yeah. But thank you so much. So before we go and uh, dive into uh, into the Tesla venture and the the new approach that uh, you guys have at least on the on the climate tech uh, side as well. Um, Let's take this zoom out and you already, I think it's a good segue. You are mentioning like solar and this is uh, what we uh, agreed on uh, prior to the, the call. It's really to try to get your, your understand of the Australian residential solar in a way success, uh, challenges and, and opportunities. I mean, what can the, the world learn from it? Uh, why does it matter in the, in the context of, of the fight uh, against climate change today? Maybe you can start by giving the audience your overview of the overall problem. Uh, of the energy consumption in the residential sectors that it represents in terms of uh, contribution to uh, GSG emission uh, in Australia globally. Uh, if you could share some data points to frame the context, uh, and then we'll go into the, the, the solar uh, story uh, after that. But really like trying to frame at first, like the, the, the problem here and why solar in a way matters at the residential level. 
Absolutely. It's a, it's a great question. So Australia's energy system is actually going undergoing just a massive, massive transformation. And it, it has been for, for many years now, but it's really accelerated because of price reductions and a number of other, other reasons. And so in particular, so wind and solar are now the cheapest forms of energy in the world. So that's been a massive, massive tailwind. And Australia has a really strong desire to accelerate that. And the government you know, government years ago created feed-in tariffs to subsidise the really high-cost systems that existed at that time. And that, that really was the start. And it, it led to the enablement of, of scale for the manufacturers. And it led to lots of, of grassroots education campaign that really spread the world really effectively. So Australia at the moment, it's trying to accelerate and double the level of renewable generation each decade from now to 2050. And so it's a, it's a really massive kind of, you know, massive goal that's been set at a, at a government level, you know, Australia-wide. And Australia has a target to actually reduce its emissions by 43% of the 2005 levels by 2030. So ultimately the aim, you know, is to is to have renewables account for 80% of, of electricity uh, generation at, by 2030, which is quite an audacious goal. So if you if you look at where we stand right now, actually, coal is the number one source of, of electricity generation and power in Australia. So at the moment, coal and gas, they account for about 64% um, of of Australia's energy use. So coal, and I believe that number was about 70% in 2021. It's about 64% now. So it is decreasing, but it's still the majority. And the, the thing that's caused that decrease is really the growth of, of renewables in Australia. So in Australia, renewables in 2021 were 35.9% of Australia's electricity generation. So it's, it's, it's definitely encouraging progress, and that was up from about 32% the year before, and I think it was you know well below that. I think it was about 16% back in 2017. So the last, last few years in particular have seen a dramatic adoption of residential solar, um, really aiming for that 80 to 82% of total renewables, uh, of renewables generating 80 to 82% of electricity generation by 2030. So you know, to be a bit more concrete about it, 2.7 gigawatts uh, was added in 2022. And whilst that was slightly down year on year, it's actually a really significant number overall. And the level of scale now is significant. So of that 3.4 mil of total households that I mentioned, there's about 310,000 per year new residential installs that are occurring on rooftops. So, it's, it's really been a significant um, thing, a really significant movement that's occurred in Australia. Um, it's really exciting the way now renewables, you know, rooftop solar is now more than a quarter of Australia's total renewable energy generation. So as a category, just rooftop residential solar, rooftop solar alone is, is very, very material of itself. And, and really what we're fighting against is the, the burning of black and brown coal at large power stations. So. Coal itself, you know, if you take coal as, as one group, and Australia is a very significant exporter of thermal coal. It's the number four largest exporter in the world. But in terms of internal use, so it, the usage is about 55% of, of generation from coal, um, with gas being number two um, and and, um, and also being, being a really significant source. So 
Overall, we're seeing some really positive tailwinds. Batteries in Australia are very, very early stage. So in 2022, we only saw 50,000 battery installs. Uh, and that was about, that compared to about 34,000 the year before that. So we're, we're still talking really low numbers of, of batteries because obviously they're, they're still you know, quite uneconomic for residences. Um, and, and overall, the attachment rate of a battery is about 1.6% to a household that already has rooftop solar. So over time, you would expect that number to increase dramatically, especially as costs come down of, of batteries. So as they heat that learning curve and really can build at a massive scale. And then also as warranties increase. So I think warranties is also a, a big driver of the, the length of warranties, a big driver of households' willingness to invest. So overall, it's it's been a, a really really significant change in the market, and we you know the the government adoption has been one of the biggest uh, government supportive initiatives has been one of the biggest things that's really moved the sector along. You asked about some of the challenges and like you know that that whole journey of getting us to three point four million households. So. I think in the early days, it was it was actually very expensive. Uh, so, I mean, I remember when my dad got rooftop solar many, many, many years ago, and it, like it was a very expensive, very high upfront cost. The financing models were still a little bit less mature, much less mature than they are now. Where now there's lots of financiers in the market that can that can make something zero upfront cost. That wasn't the case back then. And then there was also a really strong education requirement. So a lot of households were simply not very aware of what rooftop solar was. You know, even even contractors were not that great at explaining it back in the day. And it was a it was a large purchase that, that had lots of lots of complexity to it. So it was it, it was just something that was very challenging back then. And then also just even technical things, so ensuring that the panels were in the best location or in the you know were in the in, in the optimal orientation was something that wasn't yet perfected. They didn't have the right software to really empower them that, that's now available with Open Solar, and just the, the actual power factor that the panels themselves had. Like the panels themselves were much larger, uh, and so a lot of households were just not as suitable back then. And then finally, grid connection was also, you know, it was, it took a long time. It was much harder and there was a real learning curve. And I think those issues have really, really improved dramatically. So we've seen, you know, what's really made a difference, like why, I guess, taking a step back, like why did it work overall? I'd say one of the biggest reasons is government support. So the government provided really strong feed-in tariffs um, and that, that's been gradually reduced over time. So. Like even even year on year, you're seeing the feed-in tariff drop by several hundred dollars for a typical system, uh, up to a thousand dollars, which is is meaningful for a household. And so, and and that kind of mirrors the decreasing in decrease in system costs that's been experienced. Uh, the, I think the governments generally did quite well with awareness campaigns as well. So I think that's something that generally many groups globally can and should keep investing in. And uh, there, there's, you know, there's actually even some Facebook groups that are really active today that, that are a really great source of information, like peer-to-peer -peer knowledge sharing and, and quality assurance, I guess, for the, for the, you know, people considering solar and just people helping each other and people really getting up the curve and understanding the benefits really clearly. That, that's been a really, really strong driver of the space. 
And we're seeing also, I mean, Australia is, is also an extremely lucky country. We, we have an abundance of solar. You know, radiation in Australia is, is really, really strong. So I do genuinely believe that Australia can be a, a solar energy superpower. So not only is, is uh, the adoption today really strong, but also the, the ability to export some of that sunshine uh, to globally. There's a, there's a project called Sun Cable uh, that, that is trying to do that to export Australian sunshine from the Northern Territory to, to, uh, to Singapore, for example. So being able to transmit some of that energy and, and projects like that. So I, I see a lot of, a lot of opportunities there. Um, and I, you know, we're really excited to, to invest in some of the companies that are really driving that change. So speaking a little bit about like uh, solar panel technology, I mean, which are the, the, the companies uh, producing those, um, you know, solar panels back then and then uh, as of today? Uh, is it like produced uh, inland uh, Australia or is it like, um, you know, produced in, uh, in, in, in China or uh, other countries? I mean, how is the, the market organized and, and how, is the, how did you see like the, the, the price evolving along the, along the years? Yeah, so the, the, the OEM market, the, the manufacturing market, is an extremely competitive market. But today, approximately 80% of panels manufactured are manufactured in China, of, of those that, that find their way onto Australian rooftops. And even, even uh, Canada Solar is a Canadian solar is manufactures in China. So even with some of the brands that, that may not sound, sound Chinese, often they're not Chinese. And a lot of these manufacturers, they have been doing this for a very long time, for many decades now. Several of these companies have gone into insolvency and had, you know, they, they took on too much debt because they, they debt financed a lot of their facilities. And so you have seen a shakeout of some of the industry, but we've seen a bunch of them, you know, persist and really become really strong uh, kind of you know, players in the Australian manufacturing sector. And I think Solar Quotes is a really great site that, that, that a lot of Australians use to get quotes. Uh, Open Solar also has a lot of information on this as well, although obviously they're focused more on software contractors. But essentially, the, the market is organised with many different manufacturers, and uh, they're all vying for competition. There has been a lot of change at the top, but now it's it's fairly commoditized, I'd say. So um, I mean, all of the bat, all of the the solar panels that you see, I mean, they typically have 21 to 22% conversion efficiency. And if you actually go through the exercise of comparing, there's there's definitely small differences here and there. And you might go for one because sometimes one will offer a, a longer warranty, like you can get 25 year warranty uh, often. Uh, so they have small differences around the edges, but generally I'd say if you if you stick to us uh, to one of the probably fifteen manufacturers that's that has a good track record um, in Australia, I think you'll 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 have a really good experience. On the inverter side, there are less players in that space, uh, but but equally it is a space where there's now lots of high quality producers. So overall, the, I'd say I'd characterise those markets as fairly mature. There is an Australian company called SunDrive that we're not an investor in, but you know, it has what looks like a very exciting kind of uh, proposition that they're trying to build. So I believe they're trying to create solar panels with 26% efficiency, uh, which is obviously great. So 
that efficiency really makes makes uh, the most of, of the, you know, the, the limited rooftop solar that, that some households have. So that's an exciting development. But overall, I'd say we're we're definitely in the in the maturity phase of, of this industry. Mm-hmm. So t- taking a macro approach and stepping back for a bit, I mean. Could you tell us, like, uh, and to the audience, according to you, what have been the, the Australian advantages and, and weaknesses in regarding this residential solar, like, mass uh, adoption in a way? And how would you compare Australia versus uh, China, who is very active as well, uh, and the US and maybe the EU? Like, what are the lessons learned that uh, should be shared with other countries uh, that would like to uh, reach that level of uh, adoption? Yeah, so I'd say China is a very significant producer of of uh, of renewables. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a as I said, it's the largest manufacturer by a long way of solar panels uh, and inverters as well. So it's a, it's a very very significant uh, country in that space. You know, they, they are they have most of their electricity sourced by coal, uh, thermal coal that that keeps climbing very significantly. You know, they, they have committed to reducing, uh, to getting to net zero by 2060. So, you know, it, it is still a long way away, but, you know, they are still building some coal plants today, uh, which which makes it quite hard given the, the lifetime of, of these coal plants. Uh, so overall, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a huge economy, obviously. They, they, they're, they're growing, they're improving their quality of life. So they, they have a really strong need for energy. And so that, that creates a desire to get as many energy sources as possible. But overall, you know, I would say that China, what happens in China, and then also in India, which is a, a rapidly, a, a massive economy that's growing really significantly, I'd say what happens in those two markets is really, really important to the outcome on climate change. And in the US, so the US has been, you know, there's been fits and starts in the US. Unfortunately, in the US, the cost of a solar installation is probably about three times the price as Australia on a, on a per capita adjusted basis. So solar is much more expensive there. And part of the reason is far fewer homes actually have solar today. And so you just haven't seen the scale that, that, that you really need. But also the soft costs are, are much higher. So small things like the, the painful process of getting approval uh, to actually connect uh, your solar system, the requirement for many more site visits, uh, so, like that, that, that whole market, uh, you know, there, there's lots of opportunity to streamline it. And the founders of the founder of Open Solar, uh, Birchie or Andrew Birch, has actually created a not-for-profit that seeks to streamline the process and automate the approval process in the U.S. to really reduce the cost of, of solar for a household. Because in the U.S., you pretty much have to get solar financed. I think 80% of systems are financed in the U.S. market. Uh, so, you, you know, you, you see less people able to pay on their credit card or even pay with cash out of their pay run or cash reserves uh, that they might have. And so overall, I mean, we, we, we would we would obviously love to see those soft costs decreasing, the ability to get, get jobs done much more efficiently, and, and that, that will lead to really great outcomes. So I expect in the US in the next decade, we'll see tens of millions of homes electrified, we'll see tens of millions of solar rooftop PV uh, installs happening. There's 160 million households in the US today, and about 3 million have residential rooftop solar. So I think we could end up with a number, many, many, many multiples of that number. And so that 
that gives me a lot of excitement. The EU is also facing, you know, with the with the energy crisis that they went to, they're seeing really strong demand for solar. Uh, you know, open solar is getting adoption globally from many of these markets, and we, we can see it really clearly in their in their numbers as well. So the the UK, Germany, many places like that, Spain, Denmark, they're seeing really strong pull for for solar, and uh, and so we're, we're you know the energy crisis that occurred. The, the greater desire for energy independence uh, with the war, this very sad war in the in, in the Ukraine, uh, that that has created some real tailwinds to that industry, and so we're seeing a, a move off off gas. Uh, we, we are seeing American gas companies also increase their exports there, but it's seeing we're seeing really strong adoption of of rooftop solar as well. So we we think there's a huge amount of opportunity uh, globally. Uh, and I think Australia will continue to grow well, but they already have very high adoption. But that number will still grow massively, even even from the one third of households. And then we're really at the start of a gigantic S curve in many parts, many other parts of the world. So we're we're really excited. And then we think that really reducing the soft costs is really important. You know, the educational uh, programs that I talked about. Uh, we're, we're, I mean, the great thing is there's so many really smart and motivated people in, in America that are, are really excited about the electrif electrified future. And they, they have committed with the $369 billion Inflation Reduction Act. That will have a multiple effect. It's not just that $369 bill. It will have multiple uh, a multiplier effect throughout the economy that will really drive a transition with the EV credits, for example, and the credits for solar being extended so we think there's extremely strong tailwinds and uh, yeah we're, we're extremely excited about what the market holds mm -hmm. so you mentioned that the adoption is so high in australia but there's still uh, this i would say residual like percentage that is not uh, achieved to reach you know with this theoretical goal of like 100 percent so what are the, the, the major constraints that you that you have identified are still uh, paving the way right now to really get this um, you know fully 100% um, uh, residential solar adoption uh, within uh, every Australian household? I mean, is it like a need of like uh, extra uh, policies or like uh, access to uh, fundings uh, for those uh, those uh, residential? Or there is like you know places where Unfortunately, um, you know, solar is just not possible for this type of uh, of buildings as of today. Yeah, so I think that you know, unfortunately, the the challenge, the macroeconomic challenges we're having definitely do have an impact, and, and they have had an impact. So as interest rates rise, obviously the cost of financing everything becomes a lot more expensive, and so the payback period on a new re residential install is, is longer. I mean, it, it's still very attractive today. I think you could get, you know, most people you would probably see a six to nine year payback on your residential solar system. And overall, that system, you know, you might get a warranty for 25 years on the panel and maybe 10 or 15 years on the inverter. Uh, and so, you, you know, you, you'll, as, a, as an investment, I think it's a really strong, you know, probably a 20% IRR. Uh, invest internal rate of return type of investment. So it's a really great place to allocate capital, but it really comes down to access to capital. And, you know, I'm very cognizant that a lot of people are, are suffering through this macroeconomic environment. You know, it, it is much harder to, to get the financing today. I think approval, approval rates have dropped quite significantly. So I think that 
you know, from an economic point of view, just the general unease that exists makes it better, as as it does for any large purchase. But overall, the the cost of of, of electricity, so the actual cost of, of running your house today is increasing. I mean, we're seeing we're seeing some of the largest utilities increase prices like twenty percent or more annually. Uh, you know, some as, as high as thirty or forty percent. So these are these are really high changes, and really large changes to, to electricity prices. And so, and, and I think that will continue happening in the future. So there's, there's more and more of an impetus to you know to, to get as much energy from the sun in a in a renewable way as, as you can. So I think overall, I think a stabilisation of interest rates will help. That not not only did the increase hurt, but just the five percent increase in twelve months. Uh, creates a lot of uncertainty and creates a lot of challenges uh, with a lot of the the financing companies changing their offering uh, and having pulling offers from the market. So there's a dislocation that really occurred there. So I think that that is definitely one. I think overall, like making it accessible to more and more people and, and businesses where you know, I've, I've heard of innovations such as, you know, a company that has a flexible solar solar panel that is able to fit on roof, roofs of warehouses that are a bit more flimsy, for example, so more flexible. You know, something like that could could open up parts of the market that might have struggled uh, to get get the level of adoption, the number of panels, uh, or it might not be a suitable material. So there's definitely, I think, there's a business called that's that's uh, focused on that innovation. Uh, so I, th I think there's there's lots of different niches like that. I'd say that uh, that renters like figure out a way for renters, so for renters uh, within within shared properties to, to be able to, to enjoy the benefits of solar that that's a really important um, important point as well so there's an Australian company called Alum energy uh, that, that is basically offering a way for for uh, buildings like homeowner associations to introduce solar uh, into the whole building and uh, and then share the solar appropriately and there's also American companies that are seeking to do that uh, so that, that that part of the market is really in its infancy sadly you know today uh, most renters don't don't have the benefit of solar unless unless a, a homeowners association kind of decides to get it um, on their own kind of will and then Having to figure out a way to share the the costs, uh, kind of in a in a in a more kind of difficult way after that. So it's, it's that that part of the market. There's there's clear opportunity, and I think there's lots of different niches like that. But I'd say that just getting solar on on the you know tens and tens of millions of rooftops that actually can today, and just simply making it a lower cost proposition, uh, is is the most important thing today. Like they, these are really all critical problems. Um, and then I'd, I'd also point to uh, education and training of, of the workforce. Like we we need a lot more electricians. Like the electricians are going to be incredibly busy in the next next decade or two. Uh, in addition to open solar, we also invested in a US business called BuildOps, and BuildOps provides software for commercial contractors to let them run their business. So that includes. HVAC, plumbing, electricians, etc. And so we believe those people will be extremely busy electrifying. They'll be busy making changes to, to commercial properties. And so supporting them with, with intelligent software that helps them be more efficient is a, is a really large opportunity. But overall, that training market is, is you know, it's, it's hard to get enough electricians. Electricians are really busy all the time. It's hard to even staff trainers 
to train more electricians. Like literally a bunch of them will, will start and then get poached or they'll they'll retire. And there's just real shortages in that space. So I do think there's lots of opportunity. And there are a few companies that are uh, in investigating that area. So I see a lot of opportunity there as well. So to close this uh, this section, uh, if you look at the end of the of the value chain of uh, the, the solar in itself, like what is the um, current companies or like um, the rate also in adoption in terms of like recycling all of those millions of uh, solar panels that uh, uh, in the near future uh, and as of today are already coming into uh, you know their uh, life um, you know and in itself so what is the, the the plan there and how do you see the market there yeah so i must admit that's a space i haven't yet done a deep dive on but it is an incredibly important problem and i i think we're we're seeing in australia some really early stage companies that are being formed around recycling of panels because some literally some of the panels that were you know, 10 years ago were put on rooftops and now, now is the time where a lot of them are starting to fail and they're just getting less efficient so there is a degradation that occurs i think it's around 0.5 percent per annum uh, overall inefficiency that occurs. So, you know, there's, there's a real degradation that occurs and then being able to recycle and, and um, get the benefit of those commodities and, and metals again is very important. I'd say where, where you know, th this is probably a phenomenal time to start start investing in that space. But overall, it's, it's a space that today I'd say the volumes are low, but it will be absolutely critical tomorrow. Another space that's really, you know, I see similarities with that is, is um, supporting the grid like creating a lot more stability to the grid because as you add more renewables it creates a, a system that's a lot more dynamic and a lot more complicated for the grid to deal with uh, obviously coal obviously uh, solar and wind are not dispatchable you can't press a button and you know it's not like a peaker plant that's very expensive energy but you can press a button and in in minutes it's supporting the grid so we're very interested as well in solutions to support the grid. Uh, we think there'll be trillions of dollars that's spent on upgrading the grid in the, in the next in the coming decade or two, and so we think that's an opportunity for huge, huge investment as well. So I think they're they're both really great areas for further investment. Thank you so much for uh, um, unveiling so much uh, interesting insights on the uh, Australian, uh, you know, residential solar market and and, and this all like uh, in a way success story. Uh, so let's go into the, the specifics of uh, Tesla Venture. I mean, can you tell us a bit more? And you already did that at the beginning of the, the interview, but maybe to quickly reframe, uh, I would say like the, the story, the genesis uh, of it, and this growing interest uh, in the climate tech sector for as we mentioned, like, uh, you know, as a traditional VC firm, uh, which is not always the, the case, but more and more. So what was the initial gap uh, that you saw that led you to more this more interest in the uh, in the space in itself? Yeah, really great question. So we, we have a, a quite, uh, you know, not a very traditional background. And so we actually started about 12 years ago as executives at Telstra Corporation, which is uh, is Australia's largest telco. It's also Australia's most valuable brand. So it's a business that has about 18 mil uh, mobile services in operation. It's it's a very well-known company in Australia. And then it globally, it operates in 20 other countries, for example, lots of parts of Asia um, as well. 
And so we started off investing in some of the software companies that, that we saw were growing quite significantly. And then in mid-2018, we actually did a spin-out of the firm. So we, we created our own firm uh, that's independent and we, we, we rolled those assets that we'd already invested in that hadn't already exited. And we raised a lot more capital, about 265 mil USD of new capital. And then we, we started investing uh, out of that fund fund too, notionally. We also raised some, you know, we were also able to bring on board some really excellent new limited partners or LPs for that fund. So they, they include lots of super pension funds or superannuation funds. Uh, we also added a European corporate that's also extremely interested in climate. Uh, we've added 20 family officers and we, we, the investing partners, also invested heavily personally in the fund as well. So, so that's, that's, that was our genesis. And so it, late, late last year, we raised a 350 mil USD third fund as well. So we, we, incre we added about 30 new limited partners um, as part of that. And, um, and, and so we're, we're very actively investing now. And so with, with climate tech, so we, we think there's, there's, I mean, we see huge changes occurring in the world. And like we, we like to invest our capital into, where we think we're at the start of an S-curve that can create really enduring companies, you know, that can create companies that are solving some of the hardest to solve problems at scale. And so investing in things that maybe they're small today, but in the future, we think they're going to be a big deal. You know, another or, or, or even a sector that's really in transition. So there was a legacy solution that wasn't quite ideal. And then there's a new solution. So we were an investor in CrowdStrike, for example, which really reinvented endpoint cybersecurity using machine learning. And they've grown to be a, a 30 billion, 30 or 40 billion market cap company. So they've become a really significant company in that space with $3 billion of annual recurring revenue. And they've really disrupted that market from incumbents like McAfee and Symantec. So we, we look for giant changes that are occurring and we try to find founders we think have a vision of the future uh, that, that really excites us. So it's like, like a vision that maybe to other people seems a bit crazy, but but just a vision for how you can make sense of the madness and ultimately deliver a much, much better customer experience. And so that, that's what we spend time doing. We spend a lot of time talking to customers, like very early customers of these companies, understanding their, their challenges, understanding where the opportunities lie. And, you know, through that, we, we really understand what, 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 what something could be. So we, we love to dream with founders. And, uh, and so overall, we, one of the ways where we're really different is we've generated over 450 mil USD of revenue so far. And so that's been a really important part of our story as well, where we're really working side by side with the founders uh, as much as we can that we're actually helping rather than hindering, but actually helping them by finding additional revenue. And like we think particularly in a very challenged market, the value proposition of, a, of, a, of an investment partner that it can actually bring revenue and bring distribution, it matters more than it's ever mattered before. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a good uh, segue for my next question. I mean, we all know that, uh, you know, founders are, are looking more than capital uh, when uh, they decide to, in a way, get married with, uh, with some uh, of the, the investors. So what do you offer to, to founders that you invest in? And you're just mentioning that, but often it's like, what are the challenges in a way that you find are specific to 
climate tech, uh, you know, founders versus the traditional uh, tech startups that you have been backing so far. I mean, for like the, the one that you are starting to see, like how are you planning in a way to, to, to support those specific challenges that you, uh, you see that are, you know, inherent to that space uh, per se? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I'd say that climate tech uh, kind of, it, it takes on many, many shapes and sizes. There's many, many different types of climate tech. Like, so a business, for example, doing direct air capture and literally trying to suck carbon from the sky, you know, it's very different from a, another company. So, for example, we invested in Rethought, which is a flood insurance technology company. So they're, they're on the mitigation side. And what they're trying to do is they provide, they write flood insurance policies using climate change data on every single property uh, in, in the US. And so they actually assign a resilience score to every property. And they, they've won multiple awards doing this as well. So they've been able to achieve much lower loss ratios than incumbents. And so for, for a business like that, we really work as a, as a business partner and a confident of the founder will we'll work and help her or him really advance their vision, will be a sounding board I'd say overall in climate tech, you know, the space sadly is not moving fast enough. And often that means also more capital is needed. So we, we help them assemble the right capital partners. It's also a space where getting early confidence of customers is really critical. So the, the first customers you get, you know, these can be really significant kind of bets that they're making, like they're really having to, to believe the vision often. And so a partner who can actually, who is trusted by customers as well, who can introduce the right customers and that take that leap of faith, I think is a real value proposition. One really concrete thing that we offer is the ability to expand geographically as well. So we, we, are, we have a very strong presence in Australia and Asia Pac. And so, for example, we've helped some of our companies set up offices here in Australia. We've helped them hire people. We've helped them find their first customers. You know, we can literally introduce some of the developers. You know, there's many carbon developers in Australia. We, we can make introductions like that. We can introduce utilities. So, I mean, a lot of it is really leveraging our extensive network and finding the right people to help a company grow. And I mean, we've always felt customers, like getting customers really makes a difference. And then finally, hiring is a really important delta. So we we will we invest quite quite actively in finding the right people. Sometimes that's to lead an Australian or Singaporean office for a founder. We've also invested quite aggressively in data science as well, and we have a capability where we can send a founder a list of potential people to hire that they can consider in their network or in our network or broader. And so literally if they like often with, with climate tech companies, there's, there's huge interest for the roles, but some of them are really, really hard to find. They're, they're very, very specific roles. For example, if you're talking about someone that scaled manufacturing to a significant degree, you know, we, we have the capability to un unleash our data science to find really great and hard to find candidates in that space. And we actually have a four person team that does that and then a two person data science team that really supports our founders in that. So so overall, I mean, we offer founders a lot of different things and we try to connect them to the right people and, and offer strategic advice to help them help them with the challenges. It's it's a long road and we need, you know, resilience is, is really key. Mm -hmm. 
So if you could share maybe uh, one or two sectors that are the most promising for you today in terms of what I call impact cash return or ICR, meaning building impactful companies while creating highly profitable business, do you see maybe one or two underdogs or subsectors area that uh, you're really excited about today? And you mentioned yeah. a few of them during the, the, the first part of the interview, but maybe if you have uh, one or two more that uh, uh, quickly you could uh, share with us. Yeah, do you mean in climate specifically or, or beyond that as well? No, really like on the climate uh, climate side. Yeah, yeah. so o Open Solar, I mean, I've talked about them you know, a fair amount here, but Open Solar actually donate 1% of their revenue to, to various cha charities as well that support the adoption of, uh, of, uh, of uh, greater residential solar, especially in places like Africa. And so they, they do a, actually a lot of work uh, to to really lend uh, lend their expertise, lend their software, lend uh, lend their network to make communities successful in, in Africa. Um, and then I'd say, um, you know, I'd say I, I've already talked a lot about Rethought, but I'd say they've got a really big impact approach as well. So I mean, the the impact of of kind of being able to isolate those places that are most likely to be impacted by flooding, the, the data engine that they have. Like I, they're using that today to write policies, but I'd say, you know, over time there's a really big climate equality aspect. So unfortunately, the people that have generally created climate change are the are, are not the ones who are going to suffer the most, and often the ones that suffer the most are the poorest. And so I'd say leveraging technology like that uh, to kind of find ways to to help those that are most likely to be impacted by climate through bushfires. Um, is, is really important. We're, there are some exciting companies around um, operational resilience. So things like being able to predict a, a, a bushfire or a drought and, and use that as a, as a data product um, as well. I think that's a, a really strong element. We're seeing companies in that space, but probably none that I'll name right now, but we're definitely seeing companies like that that are having a really strong a really strong impact uh, approach as well. So enabling people to vacate homes before the before the worst impact of a flood, for example. On the other side of the spectrum, maybe one or two sectors that uh, you guys are not interested in or don't feel, you know, any. Uh, and again, on the climate uh, climate tech space uh, per se or industry. Uh, I mean, which one do you think are more like greenwashing or waste of time or waste of time and resource? No need to yes. name any companies, but it's more about like, you know, we like to, to understand what is exciting and what is less for each yeah. investor. Yeah, so I'd say probably most investors are, are you know, treat offsets with a bit more cynicism. And um, we think there's some really exciting opportunities to kind of improve that situation. But at the moment, unfortunately, a lot of the offsets that have been issued by some of the standard, the four main standards in the, in the, in the area, in, in, in the area of carbon projects, unfortunately, a lot of them seem to not be additional and um, and not really be effective in, in actually creating a better outcome from a climate point of view. So I'd say we're, we, we are cynical and we think there are real problems in that space, real integrity issues. And so I'd actually say there's also opportunity there, right? Someone can come along and improve that situation dramatically. But today, I'd say if you're buying offsets, there's reason to be really really quite cautious. And we're seeing Delta Airlines be sued uh, for, for more than a billion dollars of, of offset purchases that they made 
along with a campaign around how they were the only uh, net negative airline and uh, and they achieved that through buying very cheap offsets. So I think cynicism is warranted there. And then finally, I mean, we, we think that the whole nuclear SMR space is very interesting, but I'd say it's probably an area we're less likely to make an investment simply due to capital reasons. I'd say that that's an area that's extremely capital intensive. And I mean, I've been I've been following New Scale quite closely. I think I think that sector is intriguing. Uh, New Scale is one of the one of the kind of leaders in that space. And unfortunately, their costs and timelines just keep getting pushed out. Unfortunately, so we're you know I'd say overall that like that is a technology that will help us, but it just seems like it's extremely expensive, and it, it will probably come years too late as well. So. I'd say also there's opportunity as well. Like whilst we're talking about things we're not excited by, like ultimately if founders can find a way to innovate through these challenges, there's huge opportunity as well. So how do you uh, guys measure impact uh, in comparison of like, you know, other firms and uh, clearly like are more like a traditional VC firm, but now starting to invest and looking to the, the climate uh, clean tech space. Uh, any like criteria that you have in place or framework or um, any, you know, team of scientists that uh, you're relying on to kind of like assess that part of, uh, as well? Yeah, so we, we do pretty extensive reporting on this. ESG is a really important part of what we do in every single investment, both at the initial investment before we invest, and also over time as we assess the company, we're really focused on, on their metrics around ESG, on the actual impact they drive. And so we work really closely with the founders on things like uh, trying to improve the you know, uh, equality, having more female representation, like having more varied views. Sadly, boards are, are extremely dominated by white males and you know that that's a, a very unfortunate thing but we're we're doing a lot of work to try to source female candidates for positions uh where where we've actually created a, a female leader roundtable as well which is really focused i think we've had two events so far uh where we've linked together dozens of of uh of some of the most impressive founders and executives uh, in our portfolio, and we we really use that to create hundreds of other connections that can help find really excellent uh, leads when when our companies and, and other companies are hiring. So we're really seeking to put that uh, into into um, you know create a real impact from that. We we do donate one percent of our you know we're part of the pledge. Our our firm is part of pledge one percent. So we actually make significant donations to various causes that we're excited by that include things like coding uh, for women. Uh, we're also an investor in a company called Springboard, uh, which we think is the largest private uh, online school uh, focused on digital skills. So you can you can do six to nine month immersive gaps uh, in immersive courses in skill gap areas like data science, for example, and every student gets a mentor. And so with them, they actually have uh, lots of discounts for women and so we've worked really closely as well and so we're we're also introducing them to other you know other others in the ecosystem that can work with them from a not-for-profit point of view and, and get more people uh, who are disadvantaged through their program so we think that's that's really exciting and then we also do hire experts as well uh, from time to time we, we will like quite often we'll retain an expert that will help us through some of these issues um, we've done that on climate deals in the past, and and part of the mandate is around really assessing impact 
uh, of a technology. So we love technologies that democratize and make something a lot more accessible. So what's next for Tesla Venture? Yeah, uh, very busily investing the 350 mil US we, we've raised. So we're, we're, uh, we've, I think we've closed several new investments in the last, last few months. Um, I, I, uh, we've, we've now, I think we've had 35 exits overall as a team. We've, we've been able to return more than 600 mil USD of cash to our LPs uh, so far, which, you know, is, is not, it's a drop on the ocean overall, but, you know, we've been excited by the process. So I think what's next is just finding founders that are really making an impact on climate. Um, it, it is a top three area for investment for our firm. So I expect us to do a lot more investing in this space. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to see us, uh, you know, be a, be a partner to some of the companies that make the biggest impact in the space. A little bit more personal question here, but what's your personal view on the, on the climate crisis? I mean, what would you say to people who feel demoralized or anxious with all the already visible consequences uh, about, uh, from climate change? I mean, are we doomed? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And, you know, I, I must admit, I sometimes have good days and I sometimes have bad days. I mean, it's it's seeing the charts coming out is, is really alarming to me. Um, and I'd say, you know, overall, I try to focus on the things that we can do that make a difference uh, rather than kind of being crippled with fear. And like one thing, one thing that actually gives me a lot of a lot of reason for hope is that if you look back kind of a century plus ago, uh, it was actually w widely predicted that humanity would run out of food. So back then populations were growing and farms were very unsophisticated. And so that, that was the prevailing view that humanity would actually run out of food and kind of self-destruct. And then two German physicists in, in 1909 created ammonium nitrate and that, that innovation 5X the per farm productivity uh, globally and so and so uh, you know markets like the US and Australia the farms scaled up dramatically in, in output and that, that obviously we haven't run out of food and so I'd say we you know we will see innovations like that I mean what gives me comfort is seeing some of the smartest people in the world choosing of all the things they can do to work on this I mean to give you an example like one of the early executives at open solar is the former CMO of LinkedIn up until the IPO. And this is a great person who has a lot of different options and they're choosing to work at a, at a company that can make a di real difference to the climate crisis. So I'd say, like, I'd say, you know, focusing on things you can do is, is really important. And I'd say electrification and all the technologies we've been talking about, they're, they're going to create a world of abundance overall. Like overall, if we can get to almost a zero cost of energy, and we're already seeing this in the middle of the day, like in the middle of the day in Australia, you have to pay people to take your solar. It's it's free or negative cost. And so I think there's going to be huge abundance that's unlocked by that. And, you know, we're, we're combined with some of the advances that are happening in AI. I'm, ac I'm actually very excited about the future. Um, I'd say we, we need to be investing really extensively around p helping mitigate the consequences because they are going to be real. But I also think some of the founders today are, are really doing amazing things and there is a world of abundance around the corner. How can the community of uh, investors, founders, experts listening to the, the show today can uh, help you? Yeah, oh, help me. That's, that's very generous. 
Uh, so just send me all their future unicorn deals, please. So that would be <laughs> really great. I'll just sign why the money and we're done. Um, more, more seriously, I uh, yeah, I, I love to connect with with people who are really deep in the space. I love to meet uh, experts and founders who are really innovating. You know, I'd say I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, follow me on Twitter, send me an email. It's Albert at TelstraVentures.com. Um, I'd love to collaborate, and if if you hear of particular ideas that can move the needle, move the needle. I think overall at a global level, we have 50 to 60 gigatons of carbon removed annually. Um, and so I'd say that you know if if you're if you see a technology that can get us one gigaton, uh, you know if if things work out, I mean that's going to be exciting. So I'd I'd love to collaborate uh, with the, the ecosystem. Any question I should have uh, asked you that I did not for this first part of the uh, interview? Uh, no, no, I thought it was good. Thank you so much, Albert, for your time, incredible insights. Uh, and I'm so excited to see uh, so many amazing people like you uh, really putting so much time and effort and resource to uh, build uh, a better future and a cleaner and greater world. So thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thanks, Guillaume. Really appreciate it. Thanks again for joining us on the Tech for Climate podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Stay tuned next week for more Climate Tech Insights. In the meantime, head on over to our webpage at startupbasecamp.org where we have lots more insights and resources for anyone wanting to get involved in climate tech. If you find our resources useful, please consider donating to support our small self-funded team. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. And see you next time.